We find people that basically can't make enough uh, to, to, to eat before they go into the fields. I don't believe that. I think that you're looking at other places that are not Central Romana. People actually who focus on and go like getting an orgasm never get one. Pull up your socks and figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> Any chance we'll ever get to be a completely red state? Oh, yeah. And for the future, it's always uncertain. But more uncertain now. And listen, Blue Ivy is six years old, Beyonce is she tried to outbid me on a painting. Everybody in Atlanta right now at the Louis Vuitton store, if you black, don't go to Louis Vuitton today. Four, three, two. That's why you need to take a meeting with Kanye West, Bernard Arnault. Welcome to a special crossover episode of Grub Stakers, the podcast about billionaires and the sit down with Mike Racine. Happy Labor Day to you and yours. Uh, for Grub Stakers, I'm Sean P. McCarthy, joined by my co-hosts. Yogi Polywalt. Steve Jeffries. And so we're recording this on Labor Day, but by the time of its release, it should be either on or just after the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. And we figured the best way for both of our two podcasts to talk about the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is to talk about a billionaire named Larry Silverstein. Hmm. Uh, he is and was one of the principal owners of the World Trade Center, and he's unique in that no man in history has ever made so much money off having a dermatologist appointment on the morning of 9-11. Uh, and joining us in this discussion of 9-11 and this man's life is, of course, Mike Racine from the Sit Down Podcast. Mike, thank you for being here with us. Hello. A surprise dermatologist yes. appointment that his <laughs> wife scheduled for him. We all know how easy it is to get at the dermatologist in the last minute. You know? They're yeah. booked. They're wide open. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Mike, I just wanted to ask you to start. Uh, I know you grew up in New Jersey, uh, so you lived right next to that woman who saw the two Mossad agents dancing when the towers were burning. <laughs> I did, yeah. Uh, She's a family friend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what are what are your memories of 9-11 and of uh, your family in New Jersey's reaction to it? Yeah, well, my family's already like pretty reactionary. Yeah. So then 9-11 happened and <laughs> it, it all just kind of like ratcheted, it ratcheted everything up. But I just remember a lot of the stupid stuff from my family and like people around me right yeah. you know the, the the reactions and stuff i remember i was sitting in uh in in italian class in uh i think sophomore year of high school and we were just about to invade iraq right <laughs> and uh we were about to it, we were about to invade iraq and then somebody was like yeah well you know people say we shouldn't go to war but but you know like they they started it when they knocked our buildings down and the, t and the teacher was like, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and then like, I remember my, my uncle being like, yeah, you know, like he came over one day and he was like, yeah, you know, Al Sharpton says, oh, you can't profile the Muslims. That's, that's racial profiling. But, but I'm thinking, you know, if somebody, if somebody pulled me over and saw my name was Brian Sullivan and there were Irish terrorists in this country, you know, I could understand that. <laughs> <laughs> like, because like, that's how you fight terrorism. You just right. you just pull over everybody, right. every member of a specific race or religion, mm -hmm. and um, Ooh, that's why it's yeah. over. That's why we don't have any terrorists. That's why we don't have any terrorists. Really anymore. good at profiling and being like, well, just get all of them, and then we'll figure it out. From yeah, there. we got all the Irish people to pull over all the mm -hmm. Muslim people. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I remember him being like, you know, uh, if I was a terrorist. I would tell one of my guys to go get a little prop plane and knock the head off the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> like, like, I don't know where he got where he got that idea from. <laughs> but then I have another uncle who's like a little more like he's kind of like ostracizing the family. He like works at the airport and mm -hmm. he like was a musician. He's like a bright guy. And I remember like he came over for pizza one night and he was like, there is no terrorism. <laughs> it was like a couple a couple years after 9-11. Right, right. And my, the rest of my family was like, how can you say there's no terrorism? They just knocked the Twin Towers down. 
And uh, but looking back, I'm like, yeah, yeah. you're right. There's yeah. no terrorism. Right. That guy knew. Yeah. You were telling me, Mike, that you like contacted your congresswoman about like investigating nine. I emailed Nidia Velasquez. Yeah, really? when I was yeah when I was 22. I mean, I watched uh, Zeitgeist yeah, when yeah, I was yeah, 22, yeah. and I like got really into it. And I talked to everybody about 9/11 and how it needs to be investigated. And I did the only <laughs> the only time I ever contacted a congressperson yeah. was I wrote to Nidia and I said, "Can you please investigate 9/11?" Well, it's interesting, like doing our podcast, we did an episode a year or two ago about the Saudi connection to 9-11. Uh -huh. And, you know, I think it, I'm proud of it. It holds up. But my views have changed a little bit since then, where it's like, yeah, I'm basically I'm not ashamed to call myself a 9-11 truther now. Whereas like y y after I went to like college and, you know, uh, started reading the New York Times, I was like, mm, I, I wouldn't want this like crazy person sure. label associated mm -hmm. with. But it's like, you know, in terms of just discussing 9-11, I think as an introduction, for me, it's three questions here. Discussing 9-11 and Larry Silverstein. Mm -hmm. uh, first question is, are there unindicted co-conspirators who had pre-knowledge of 9-11? And I would argue 100% without a shadow of the doubt, yes. There are people who were involved in that attack 20 years ago mm -hmm. who are out there right now who've never been criminally charged and are just walking around. The second question would be, are some of those people, were they involved with the U.S. government? I would say pretty certainly yes. The third question, was Larry Silverstein one of them? And I would say maybe. Uh, or he's just the luckiest man on the face of the earth. <laughs> yeah. Which is not impossible. But I think those will be kind of the three questions we go through today. And I'm happy to defend my, my evidence or my viewpoints on any of those three. The dermatologist was in on it. Right. <laughs> yeah. We found like, that's the greatest thing about researching Larry Silverstein is you get to see democracy in action in YouTube comments on any Larry Silverstein <laughs> right. video. Oh, oh it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> like there was one that was just like, I want to know his dermatologist's name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His wife called and she was like, hi, Dr. Levin, uh, my, my husband's going to knock the Twin Towers down tomorrow and he needs an excuse to not be at work. <laughs> I love the comments that are like Larry Pullet Silverstein. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> we should like, I guess we should uh, uh, just starting with Larry Silverstein. Well, one of the big takeaways is like you think of like, like when you start asking these questions, you you imagine this like dark, like evil cabal who mm -hmm. like controls yeah. everything and they like they know what they're doing and they're. But my takeaway is that if there was if if there was like some foul play involved this was really sloppy and it oh, was yeah. people mm -hmm. who were like we're going to make so much money and they yeah. just like they really didn't cover all their bases they it, really didn't it does feel you know, like a like um jackpot uh well, it's fucking the it's like when a stripper's nice to you. Yeah. You, start, you don't you, you don't think clearly. <laughs> that's yeah, what that's exactly. what doing 911 yeah. was like. You know, like in those movies where like they're robbing a casino and like a whole bunch of chips fall on the floor and everyone just mm. scatters and jumps on it. Yeah. That's how I feel about 9-11. Yeah. The event mm. occurred and people went, oh, we can make a fuckload of money from this. Let's yeah. do that. Yeah. And then you think like, well, how many people were involved? Because when people start to question it, they're like, well, but there would have to be so many people involved. But if a lot of people were like making money off of it, then I don't know. I guess they would. What would be stopping them from staying silent? Yeah, and we're going to talk about this in more detail later, but to me, the most compelling evidence of, you know, let's say unindicted co-conspirators very possibly linked to the government is uh, there are three econometric papers, you know, uh, published in 
economics academic journals, which show a high probability of insider trading in the lead up to 9-11, where they were shorting these airline stocks. Mm -hmm. They were shorting the stocks of Morgan Stanley and some other banks that had offices in the World Trade Center. They were also buying defense stocks that would double in value after markets reopened after 9-11. There were Mm -hmm. shorts on the S&P 500 index. So it's like there are there is a ton of evidence of insider trading in the lead up to 9-11. And it's just like there's no real explanation of that that has ever been put forward. And it's something we all pretend didn't happen. Right. right. Mm. Yeah. It seems like a lot of these forces are kind of like at odds with each other. Right. You would think that the people at Morgan Stanley would be like consulted if they were going to blow their offices up. (laughs) Right. You know, well, that's like, like, no, my Scarface posters in there. I was thinking about this like that must have sucked to like work at like Morgan Stanley or Cantor Fitzgerald and like you just in the months before 9-11 you're walking around you have no idea that how nice you are to the boss is going to depend on whether or not you get the don't come to work today phone call (laughs) yeah (laughs) just like yeah because so many people didn't get that phone call. oh yeah yeah Yeah. no yeah but just one other thing on that is like regarding I mean, again, I think this has the fingerprints of intelligence on it, whether it's Saudi intelligence, whether it's the Mossad, whether it's the CIA, whether it's all three. And the 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 hallmark of intelligence is information car- compartmentalization. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody who's involved in it doesn't need to know everything. In fact, it's better if they only know the slightest right. little bit. Mm-hmm. There's only a very small group who, who knows most everything. Uh, most people involved in it are just... They're just told this little bit and they follow out their orders and they don't really ask questions. And, you know, if Larry Silverstein was involved, I think he falls into that latter category where he didn't really know much. He just knew something was happening. And theoretically, maybe somebody gave him a phone call that morning, told him, don't eat breakfast on the 91st floor like you do every single day Mm, uh Uh, again. Larry Silverstein. He's like making himself breakfast that morning. He's like, burn, <laughs> like burning his eggs. <laughs> like he can't cook. <laughs> He's like, ah, oh, geez, the smoke alarm's going off. He's like, they have to tell him, no, you can't call your favorite chef. You can't call your yeah, favorite yeah, chef yeah, yeah, and tell yeah, him yeah. not to come to work. No, we, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Now he's got he's to die, Larry. Sorry. Yeah. But, his wife's like, what are you doing? <laughs> he's just like depressed after like nobody can poach them. nobody can poach yeah, yeah. eggs like that man yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had to let him burn in the towers he's like he's like making a pop tart like reading the instructions <laughs> in the box <laughs> every night <Hi>, Joyce <laughs> every 9-11 he cries not for 9-11 but just the chef that died right yeah he's like oh 9-10 that was the last time no, I had those poached I'm... eggs <laughs> Uh, but to talk about uh, a little bit about Larry Silverstein, the man himself, the man is still alive. In fact, just two 90 days, years old. Yeah, 90 years old. Uh, just two days ago, he gave an interview to the Times of Israel, uh, which is definitely the kind of thing you want to do if you want to dispel those conspiracies about yourself. <laughs> yeah, a lot of this episode, I couldn't really do that much research because it was like Jewnews.org. Like it was the most anti-Semitic stuff all, every day. Right, right, right. right. And, and we, we are on dangerous ground where it's like we might get accused of being anti-semitic by right. doing this episode so but which one the guy's name is larry silverstein <laughs> we're just saying his name yep that's right you know mm-hmm. we're just saying his name and we're doing impressions here and there Loosely. that are that are pretty accurate mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah oh you know and then uh and then yeah and then my wife told me uh don't go into work because i didn't go to work <laughs> and i made seven billion dollars <laughs> next question God, I love money so much. <laughs> that's 
That's how he talks. Listeners can't see Racine's perfect smile that also matches Silverstein when he talks. (laughs) Just like a smile that says, I got away with it, but also you'll never get me. Right. My my analyst told me to short American Airlines. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yes, uh, as Yogi mentioned, like doing some research for this podcast, uh, trying to do research on Larry Silverstein, you basically run into like all... Uh, most all information is either like really surface level, like his PR people did an interview with a friendly outlet. So it's just very surface level or it's like on a website that links to the protocols of the elders of Zion <laughs> and, you know, has like yeah, a picture of a uh, Silverstein eating the twin towers, right, which are like right. shaped like a, uh, a baby that's that's being uh, killed to put on, be put on the matzo right, bread right. or whatever. You're like, there's gotta be some middle ground here somewhere. <laughs> He's got two forks shaped like planes. It's yeah. a whole thing. That's that's but that's what we're doing here is hopefully middle ground. Um, but yeah, so uh, Larry Silverstein still owns Silverstein Properties. Uh, it's as of right now the fifth largest commercial landlord in New York City. Um, back in 2000, it owned about 8.4 million square foot of space. It probably owns a little bit more now, honestly. Mm-hmm. But just regarding like the dermatologist we mentioned, right. uh, we should just say in this interview he gives to the Times of Israel a couple days ago. He says that uh, he decided to rebuild Tower 7 or Building 7 just two days after the the event. Mm -hmm. And they asked him about um, why he wasn't there the morning of 9-11. And it it says, because he buys, buys, uh, we'll talk about it in more detail. Silverstein buys the World Trade Center buildings one and two from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And the deal is finalized July 2001. So like just a few months before 9-11. And the article, Times of Israel, says in the weeks after the purchase, Silverstein would regularly meet some of the World Trade Center's tenants at a restaurant on one of the upper floors. It's apparently the 91st floor. We had breakfast almost every day. Uh, And he says, quote, so that morning I was dressing to get downtown to meet with one of my tenants. And my wife said, you can't go. And I said, why? I have an appointment downtown. She said, because I made an appointment for you with the dermatologist. And that's something you canceled last month and you cannot cancel again. When you're married for 45 years to the same woman and she gets upset, you can't let that happen. So oh, ain't said. that the truth? <laughs> oh, that sounds like my wife, Larry. All right, case closed. <laughs> Everything in this episode is conspiracy except this. Yeah. Uh, wives, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. <laughs> That's, and this concludes our investigation of <laughs> September 11th. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and apparently, as we mentioned, his daughter didn't go either. Uh, she was usually there all the time. Yeah, yeah, supposedly in that phone call, he calls his daughter, who was supposed to work in Building 7, and told her not to go to work that day. Right. And it's also convenient. They could call out work any, whenever they wanted to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, well, if she wasn't uh, his, her, his daughter. Of course. Yeah. You know, when I call out of work, they, yeah. they don't care. <laughs> She works at like the build a bear, and the- <laughs> that is a pretty funny excuse, though. Like, yeah, my my wife made me not come to work on nine eleven. Yeah, <laughs> like it doesn't really hold up. Like it's understandable, but as an alibi, very fucking weak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what would have been a better alibi? Car accident. Yeah, fake a car accident. That, fake a car that's accident. like if I needed to get out of something, I I get in a car accident. If you see Yogi Paul in a car accident, it's because I didn't want to do something. That's yeah. all you need to know. Yeah. That's a real ride or die bitch, though. Like, she creates an alibi for 9 oh, 11 yeah. for you. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can see why they've been married 45 years. <laughs> he just hires a 14 year old to drive him to work. <laughs> and the car accident happens yeah. organically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
But yeah, so, and then uh, Larry Silverstein uh, is net worth, according to Forbes, as of 2016, it's about 1.4 billion US dollars. It's, I've heard other sources say he's worth 3.5 billion, but mm. I think 1.4 billion is a uh, conservative estimate. Um, when you look at the billionaires list, that's like dog shit. Yeah, yeah it's pretty low. It's yeah. like, what the hell happened? Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, uh, between you know, his in- insurance payout, Donald and Trump has more money. Yeah. Yeah, theoretically, he's got more. Well, it should be noted the Forbes magazine net worth doesn't include all the stolen gold from the vaults mm, underneath the World Trade right. Center. Oh, okay. right. So that that bumps him up a little bit. But even that's not that much. Did he put most of the insurance payout into the World Trade Center and stuff? Yeah, like that's, uh, again, there's disputes, and, and we'll get into this a little more, but he got like a $4.5 billion insurance payout. Some people say he only walked away with about a billion of that, which sure. he reinvested into rebuilding the Trade Center. Mm. And now, like according to Forbes... Uh, most of his his net worth is almost entirely tied up in the rebuilt Seven World Trade Center, where Moody's is the primary anchor tenant. So Forbes estimates his ownership of Seven World Trade Center and some other properties is primarily what gives him a net worth of one point four billion as of two thousand sixteen. Mm-hmm. It would be funny. Like, are you guys familiar with uh, Armando Iannucci? Yeah, because mm-hmm. I I saw Death of Stalin and I watched. Uh, I'm watching Veep. Right. So the whole premise of these shows is like, oh, the people in power, like, real, they really don't know what they're doing. They're all just, but it, 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 but that guy should make a show about like the people who did nine eleven. Oh, that would yeah. be like That'd a much better show be, yeah. because they are, they probably are very like sloppy and they don't, they don't mm-hmm. cover their trail. And uh, the funniest thing is about a ton of mistakes. That guy was that like Veep's end was happening during Trump's presidency, and so nobody, I mean, people watched it, but it was like life is crazier than your show right now. And so his, yeah. sec- the show he came out with afterwards was like space cruise that goes awry because he's like i gotta oh, right, future proof right. my next fucking show no way is the world gonna be crazier than this right i'm not a fan of the show the, the space cruise one the veep no it sucks i don't love it yeah like some characters are good every now and then it's fun to see matt walsh get work but as a show mm-hmm. it kind of falls apart yeah and it is kind of julia louis dreyfus's fault yeah like, i used to do a chunk that was like if that show was better hillary would have been president like if yeah. if Veep was as good as Breaking Bad, people uh-huh. would have been like, "We need a woman in the fucking White House." Sure, yeah. They did like uh, the original or uh, Iannucci's original British show is called The Thick of It. Mm-hmm. I think it's much better than Veep. Uh-huh. Um, but like the first season, you know, it it follows a member of Parliament in the UK and like his staff, and mm-hmm. he's portrayed as like you know a phony, snaky piece of shit and sure. all that. Uh, but it, it is like. They got for the first season like one of the funniest comedic actors to to play this member of parliament, and then between the first and the second season, he gets arrested for child pornography. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there there was a bit of a downgrade in quality yeah. between the first and Who second. Who's the season. actor? I can't remember his name. Okay, um, but but yeah, you know, he, yeah, it's just funny watching that show, and then it's like that's going to be a scandal, like right. after Trump, yeah, after yeah. Trump being like John McCain. No, <laughs> fuck you. No. It immediately expired after that show was done. We were yeah. like, no, no one needs to watch us anymore. For sure. Uh, but we should mention also kind of the pull it. Like, this is like when we talk about YouTube comments about Larry Silverstein, this is uh, primarily they're focused on calling him Lucky Larry Silverstein <laughs> mm-hmm. because there is an interview where he refers to himself as like, yeah, I'm very lucky or something like that. Mm-hmm. And somebody... Somebody cut it up and played it like six times in a row of him just being like, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky. (laughs) Uh, But there's that. And then there's this PBS documentary from 2002 narrated by Kevin Spacey, by the way, if you want to talk about, you know, intelligence connections. Uh, But this 2002 PBS documentary about the rebuilding of the World Trade Center or the initial steps towards rebuilding the World Trade Center does interview Larry Silverstein. 
And he gives this like kind of bizarre quote that he's never really fully explained uh, about, you know, I told the fire department to pull it. Well, we'll just play it for you and then we can uh, we can talk about it. World Trade Center 7 had always been considered the starting point for rebuilding. Located north of the slurry wall, 7 had been cleared faster than the rest of the site. And there had been no bodies to recover. Pelted by debris when the North Tower collapsed, seven burned until late afternoon, allowing occupants to evacuate to safety. I remember getting a call from the uh, fire department commander telling me that they were not sure they were going to be able to contain the fire. And I said, you know, we've had such terrible loss of life. Maybe the smartest thing to do is, is pull it. Uh, and they made that decision to pull, and then we watched the building collapse. <laughs> this really, like, doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, he said it in an interview. It was in a documentary. Mm-hmm. And there's no other explanation for no. what that could possibly mean. Right. Like, do you think after that he was like, oh, oh shit, <laughs> fuck, fuck, why did I do that? Yeah, like, <laughs> I thought it was under oath and, when and, I was talking to PBS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does seem like in other interviews, like very like they're never gonna catch me on this. Yeah. The yeah. way he talks, and maybe I'm being fucking a piece of shit right now, but it's very like, and then you see everything was all right. Like it's like a very super villain type of voice and just a air of like they'll never fucking catch me. Yeah. I mean, as someone who also has anxiety, I kind of like, you know, identify with him and I <laughs> understand where he's coming from. But but yeah, it's just very it's very weird that like I mean, that was a mistake for him to say that. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And there's there's been uh, ex- like attempts at explanations of that, but nothing. There was something that I read that was like, no, he meant uh like he meant something else. Like pull. He they meant like, they like pull, pull the people out of it. Yeah, or yeah, pull, yeah, like yeah. The fire department should pull their people out or something. Something. Yeah. Like that. yeah. But yeah. why would you not just say pull out? Right. He didn't want to be dirty. <laughs> yeah. He knew it was a PBS <laughs> yeah. documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Keep yeah, it family yeah. friendly. Yeah. But uh, I do have actually something on this. So this is interesting. Um, the Jeffrey Scott Shapiro writing for FoxNews.com. He actually wrote an article which is like trying to debunk 9-11 truth, but he was a reporter. He was on the scene at the time. Uh, He writes this article called Shame on Jesse Ventura. Mm. It's all about how, you know, Governor Jesse Ventura is a liar about 9-11 truth and Building 7. Now, that's the other thing, too. If they if they had any credibility or competency, they would have killed Jesse Ventura. But you can't kill him. No, you'd be afraid. Well, they did use the Opie and Anthony show to spread rumors about him that he uh, they got Chris Kyle on there to say that he like. Jesse Ventura in a bar said that he was glad soldiers died in Iraq yeah, and then yeah, Ventura yeah. sued him and all that. But, yeah. but you know, regardless. They tried to kill his, kill his reputation, but you can't kill the man. No, yeah. you can't. They negatively reviewed the predator. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was watching an interview of him with Piers Morgan. I don't know when it was. Yeah, like, we were like, watching 10 years that, ago yeah. or so. He's like, oh, come on, Jesse. Right. Jesse that's ridiculous. That's preposterous. It's so funny because there's, no... there's a live audience there as well. And yeah, so Jesse yeah, yeah. finishes a point and they clap and Piers is like, oh, fuck, what do I do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you really, you never get to see, like, the behind the scenes where, like, it's, like, Pierce Morgan backstage and he's just sweating and he's like, was that, was that okay? Did I do okay? 
<laughs> uh, but yeah, from Jeffrey Scott Shapiro at foxnews.com, quote, shortly before the Building 7 collapse, several NYPD officers and Con Edison workers told me that Larry Silverstein, the property developer of One World Financial Center, was on the phone with his insurance carrier to see if they would authorize the controlled demolition of the building, since its foundation was already unstable and expected to fall. A controlled demolition would have minimized the damage caused by the building's eminent collapse and potentially saved lives. Many law enforcement personnel, firefighters, and other journalists were aware of this possible option. There was no this was there was no secret, there was no conspiracy. And it's just like kind of weird, like okay, a controlled demolition, you can't just do that. You have to have explosives yeah, in place. In the building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, so does did that they mean, mean bombing just like you can't just bomb the building? No, every building in New York City is wired with explosives just right. in case, just in <laughs> case <laughs> there's a fire. In order to be up to code, you have to yeah, build yeah, it yeah. with explosives. And all it takes is one phone call from Larry to just have his building collapse. It's kind of an oversight in the last planning meeting. Yeah. yeah. If you like, you get get on the phone with like a department in New York, if you want to like have a building demolished, they'll be like, okay, when were you bar mitzvahed? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't co-sign uh, <laughs> That you know, we did an episode yeah. on uh, Deutsche Bank in like 2005, I believe. Yeah, like a quarter of their building just like went up in flames. And mm-hmm. when the firefighters were, you know, like were asked about it, they're like, "This they did this. Like mm-hmm. the wiring was so that a fire would occur, and mm-hmm. we sent men in that died. And mm-hmm. you know, firemen can't beat a fucking international bank. That's just not going to happen. Right. But so the controlled demolition of a building is something that has been done in the case of Deutsche Bank. Mm-hmm. I will say since. Uh, my resident skeptic Andy is not here. I guess on his behalf, I will say that Tower Seven, a bunch. There's a there's a couple angles that show a bunch of shit falling into it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, also if you look at buildings like four, five, and six, those were all like ravaged by mm-hmm. fire, and none of them collapsed. And then Building Seven was pretty. It. I mean, aesthetically, yeah. it looked okay. On it's just, it just on main, on like mainstream broadcasts. I don't know why, but they just they showed like shots that just kind of show it perfectly intact, and then it fell. Yeah, <laughs> and then people said it just fell off on its own. You think Larry will hear this? Do you think maybe he's like a <laughs> podcast fan? He's like, "Oh, they're talking about me." He's like, "All right, fellas, keep doing your little podcast. Good luck." I'm ninety years old. <laughs> Larry does his more his daily scan for any mention of his name mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. all American podcasting. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, you know, I was trying to be cautious earlier because in the back of your head, you're like, "Yeah, you should be careful accusing somebody of doing 9/11 because they could probably sue you." But I was also like. All right, well, if Larry sues, I just like, could I just go to Discovery and find out who at the fire department he told to pull it? Yeah. Like, you know, I'll bankrupt myself on that, you know, information. But I wanted to mention, you know, Yogi, you mentioned all these fucking fires with Deutsche Bank. Mm-hmm. We did an episode and it's like, yeah, Deutsche Bank is the shadiest fucking bank on the face of this earth. And the thing is, when we talk about these insider trades, some of them were run through a Deutsche Bank subsidiary. Oh, yeah. Like we t- we did a whole series on Deutsche Bank. I do believe that it is like, been used by U.S. and other intelligence agencies. Uh, and so it's like, we'll get to it, but the number three at the CIA had worked at this Deutsche Bank subsidiary, which he left to become the number three at the CIA, which he was there, a buzzy Kronguard. He was the number three at the CIA on 9-11, and it just so happens the bank that he was just CEO of is one of the banks that was involved in these very suspicious transactions, very suspicious trades. So it's like, yeah, Steve, you're right. When you talk about like building seven and controlled demolition and all that, I'm agnostic. I don't want anybody to think that I like, you know, I don't want engineers to get mad at me and mm-hmm. say like, I'm not an engineer. I don't know this fucking shit. But I do know 
that there was insider trading, and I do know there are a lot of suspicious intelligence connections that we have not been told the truth, the full truth of. Sean, being agnostic is anti-Semitic, so yes. you need to choose a side, all right? Are you with us or are you with them? Yeah. Uh, but we do actually have, regarding Larry Silverstein, we do have one video, I think from Infowars.com, of him <laughs> being confronted. Like, some people showed up at some event he was at and just, like, asked him a Q&A, like, hey, who at the fire department did you tell to pull it? Could you just, like, explain uh-huh, that to uh-huh, us? Uh-huh. Uh, and we'll, we'll see his uh Oh, his I haven't answer. seen this. Yeah. Uh, I got another der- dermatologist appointment. I got to get out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If uh, Philly911truth.org <laughs> if you want to check the rest of that. Yeah, you're full of shit, Larry. Like, <laughs> yeah. fuck you, yo. Yeah, like Seattle911truth would be much more polite. That's yeah. right. Philly911truth, they get up in your face. Yeah. But the look on his face, just utter, I am not going to touch this at right. all. Like, is, you know, regardless of how much you believe the conspiracy versus the mainstream media report, like, very suspicious all around what is going on when it comes to 9-11. Yeah, and you know, if the listeners couldn't, uh, I don't know how how well the audio came through, but he, Larry Silverstein just said, "I'm not going to answer that. Let's move on to the next question," mm-hmm. which he was asked in that pullet clip that we played earlier. Who exactly at the fire department did you speak to? What? He's like, "I'm not going to tell you," and you know, nobody's tried to subpoena him or anything, so we just don't know. So it's like you know, people get so fucking mad at you for like being skeptical yeah. on this issue, and it's like there's a million unresolved questions. Of course. Mm-hmm. But isn't it crazy how that's like that's just so sloppy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he said that in a in a PBS documentary, yeah. and they aired it. There was there wasn't <laughs> even like there wasn't even like a phone call being like, yeah, I got to retract right, that. Right, right. Hey, can we do that over? Uh, but that I you think, know, I think and so. then why why can't he just say like, oh, I just meant that fire, the firefighters should get out. Yeah, yeah. Why not just say that? Yeah. It's like Alan Dulles, when Alan Dulles got confronted and mm-hmm. he spoke at some college and some student confronted him about JFK assassination. He was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and he had no answer. Like the guy, the, the student like questioned him right. with evidence. Yeah. It was like the only time Dulles ever got questions about the assassination. Right. Uh, he just had, he just had nothing. Right. He's just like, I, yeah. I don't know what the questions mean. I'm going to move on. <laughs> yeah. I think that like, you know, you were talking about like uh, you're in Jersey, how people react to 9-11. There was so much just vitriolic patriotism that uh, people were fucking transfixed in being like, America does anything wrong? No, no mm-hmm. that like it could be this sloppy and like not be a fucking problem. Yeah, for sure. Well, they have uh, a lot of people think the bigger the a conspiracy is, the more likely it is to fail. But I don't think that's really true because I think with something like this, if it was indeed a conspiracy, they could just be like, they could just gaslight you basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And say like, like every now and then, some weird shit does get out that people question. They're just like, 
are you really one of those conspiracy cranks? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the Ventura interview, especially that Pierce Morgan one, is the perfect amount of like dweeb versus a guy asking questions because it's the most like. I'm a Marine. If you cannot answer my questions, maybe you have not thought about this. And Pierce Morgan even yeah, goes, yeah. I spent I spent every day for six months looking at this. And Ventura's like, I've spent years, buddy. Yeah, like just yeah, shutting yeah. him down immediately. Uh but so I think we'll return to like, like some They're uh, like, you know what? Anthony Cumia owes me a favor. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna Pierce, we're gonna take care of this. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I think we'll, uh, return to the thing with like, yeah, nine 11 truth. Uh, there's like a, a six hour documentary called nine 11, the new Pearl Harbor. Don't agree with everything in it, but it does raise some good points, but it's just like, yeah, if you want to like go through all the unanswered questions, we just don't have time for that today. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we could spend six hours going through all this. So, uh, there are a couple things primarily to me, the insider trading, but also a couple other pieces of evidence that I think are unresolved questions that do demand a new investigation into 9-11. And we'll return to those, but I do uh, just kind of want to go through Larry Silverstein's biography or those little bit, bits and pieces that we were able to find. Um, it, it, he gives an interview to New York One. He was born in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, 1931, into a Jewish family. Uh, growing up, he uh, it, not, not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, growing up, he enjoyed <laughs> classical music and played the piano. Uh, This is a Wikipedia write-up of an interview with New York One. Mm. That's what I'm reading from here. Uh, He he enjoyed classical music. He played the piano growing up. He attended the High School of Music and Art in New York and then NYU. He graduated NYU in 1952. During college, he worked at a summer camp where he met his wife, Clara, uh, just the most ride-or-die woman of all time. Uh, The couple married in in 1956. They had three children, Lisa, Roger, and Sharon. His wife worked as a school teacher, supporting the family on her salary for the first few years of their marriage, while Silverstein attended classes at Brooklyn Law School. In 1964, he blew up his first building. (laughs) (laughs) Just for fun. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, wow, (laughs) there's a lot of money in this. In 1966, he met the greatest dermatologist of all time. Yeah. Yeah. He had a, he sold direct to video courses <laughs> at a blow up building. Uh, but yeah, so his, his father was a, a real estate broker basically. And like, there's a, there's a few different tellings of this. Um, but basically from what I was able to understand his, uh, yeah, his father was a classical pianist. This is from a Chloe Sorvino, uh, interview in Forbes magazine in 2016. His father was a classical pianist who became a real estate broker to make ends meet. Uh, After uh, Larry Silverstein graduates from NYU, uh, he joins his father uh, at this uh, real estate brokerage business, but he realized that his best shot at providing for them would be buying buildings and fixing them up instead. Mm. Uh, Quote, being a broker, I felt we would starve to death. We could not make a decent living, he recalls. In 1957, he and his father co-founded the company Silverstein Properties. It purchased his first office building on East 23rd Street for $600,000. The Silversteins had no actual money of their own in the deal. It was financed through a $350,000 mortgage and a group of investors they put together. And I was trying to like find like, yeah, how do you get fucking $350,000 um, and the closest thing to an explanation I found is fundinguniverse.com has a company history of Silverstein properties. Mm-hmm. 
And the basic story there is they lacked the necessary capital, but after many failed attempts, managed to secure a $15,000 loan for a down payment from one bank and a first mortgage of $350,000 from another. By this time, the firm was Harry G. Silverstein and Sons, the other son being uh, Bernard Mendick, is Larry Silverstein's brother-in-law, mm-hmm. who had married I- into the family. They raised the other $250,000 by per- per- persuading 22 tenants to invest ten thousand apiece. Huh. So twenty-two. His dad worked as a broker, right, and basically right. they went around to like twenty-two people that they had got apartments for, and said, "Hey, do you want to invest in this building with us?" And each of them chipped in ten thousand. And that's like, as far as I know, the story. I don't know if there's more to it. I don't know if there's like like we were looking for like mafia connections because he was like building in New York in the 80s and there's no way to do that without mm-hmm. a mafia connection basically but I couldn't really find it that's as far as I know how he got his money yeah if there's only, if there's something that's clean about Silverstein it's the lack of information pre 9/11 yeah like everything after 9/11 it's like oh Larry why, why did you why did you do it this way but you can't really go through real estate in New York City without being some sort of connections to the mob in that period I mean right. if you look at Trump from that era they're they're similar. There's similarities between Silverstein and him, but real estate has always been relatively dirty, especially in New York City. Yeah. I used to do a bit about how, like, I, I thought 9-11 was a conspiracy, but then I was watching a mob documentary, and this mafia guy was like, he's standing in front of the Twin Towers, like, you see those towers? We built those. I'm like, oh, maybe that's why they came down. <laughs> yeah, it's just like steel. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it is something where like, just regarding, let's say Larry Silverstein's shadiness, it, a lot of people are aware, but we should mention building seven itself. It was initially built in 1987, uh, and they had a couple different tenants, but a lot of people are aware, but they should be aware that one of those tenants was the central intelligence agency, uh, also the department of defense. Uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the U.S. Secret Service had offices in Building 7. And this is all between like 87 and 2001. So it's like, you know, I mean, the CIA doesn't just rent office space anywhere. He clearly had some kind of connections to somebody in the 80s up until 2001. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we've done episodes on New York real estate developers in general and they all survive through a bunch of essentially bribery. They they uh, they lobby. They pay campaign contributions mm-hmm. to various New York politicians, and in exchange, they get tax exemptions, abatements. They get uh, they get to pay the pilot program payment in lieu of taxes instead of the traditional business tax rate. There's a million different ways the city and the state helps out real estate developers and essentially gives them like massive subsidies and they get those massive subsidies through bribing politicians. So that's just like the way he made his money was he got this initial investment, uh, this initial windfall, and then you reinvested into lobbying politicians in New York state and city. Yeah. Italians had a nice little run. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's all over. Yeah, but so he he sets up this first building. It makes money, so they're able to like reinvest and keep like uh you know investing in more buildings. However, his father Harry Silverstein dies in 1966. Larry Silverstein and his brother-in-law Mendick continued acquiring properties as syndicators until uh, economic conditions worsened in 1972. Five years later, their partnership was resolved. 
Uh, his brother-in-law got divorced from his sister. That was one reason. But Mendek also said that one reason for the split was that Silverstein was interested in development, and he, which he opposed as too risky and protracted a way of making money. <laughs> so regardless, they kind of split up in the 70s. But really, uh, uh, World Trade Center Building 7 is like his first major development. He's doing... Or, his first major buildup from scratch. Right. He's doing a lot of redevelopments, a lot of uh, syndications of uh, existing buildings. Like he, uh, in 1980, uh, Silverstein Properties completed a $25 million renovation of the 33-story office building at 11 West uh, 42nd Street. He's doing a lot of renovations right. of existing uh, buildings throughout Manhattan. And he's making a decent living doing that, it seems like. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so just from this FundingUniverse.com article, apparently as of 1988, he was worth about $375 million. So he, he made a very solid living doing all this. And then it's just kind of like an open question of World Trade Center Building 7 is really, let, let's say, his big break is coming out or whatever, where it attracts all these kind of A-list clients. And it's just a question of like, how well did he know these people? How well did they trust him so that the CIA would get a fucking office there? Mm-hmm. I mean, completely, right? They they seem to have believed that Larry Silverstein was able to get the job done. Yeah, they like, so they built the World Trade Center as like buildings one through six, and then he comes in and he builds building seven, which is like in the same area connected by like a sky plaza or some bullshit. Mm -hmm. But it, it is just kind of like, uh, it's a very interesting idea. And apparently, in uh, G according to the New York Times, in June 1986, before construction was completed, Developer Larry Silverstein signed Drexel Burnham Lampart as a tenant to lease the entire seven World Trade Center building for $3 billion over a term of 30 years. And that's, you know, relevant for Grubstakers listeners might know. Drexel Burnham Lampart is a Michael Milken's firm, mm. which was in the 80s running probably the, up to that point the largest pump and dump uh, Ponzi scheme in history. They were doing these junk bonds where they had their network of captured, you know, savings and loans and uh, financial institutions that they would do fundraises for on on companies that had zero assets. And they would just like raise all these bonds and then sell these bonds on their name alone when the underlying companies were worth absolutely nothing. That's just a, a standard Ponzi scheme. And, and Michael Milken pays like a billion dollar fine. He gets to keep the other three billion right, and he right. goes to jail for like two years. And now he's like, He's still worth now three he's on billion. <laughs> <laughs> he's still worth uh, three billion dollars, but it, it is also. It, I mean, it's just like the kind of the shady connections that you run into with Larry Silverstein are hard to ignore. True. Yeah, but regardless, because Drexel Burnham Lampart gets uh, gets speared in this kind of insider trading investigation, he has to find another tenant. He ends up finding uh, primarily the Sol Solomon brothers lease most of uh, World Trade Center 7, but other tenants include American Express, as we mentioned, the Securities Exchange Commission, uh, the Internal Revenue Sources, uh, the Internal Revenue Service, uh, the U.S. Secret Service, New York City Office of Emergency Management, uh, the National Association of Emergency of uh, Insurance Commissioners, the Federal Home Loan Bank, Providence Financial Management, INS, Immigration and Naturalization Services, and of course, Department of Defense Central Intelligence Agency. So, well-connected New York developer by the time of 9-11. Sure. Very lucky. Yes. And so that kind of brings us up to the actual story of, like, how he bought World Trade Center 1 and 2 itself. Like, how he actually came to acquire the World Trade Center. And this is, like, the only, let's say, 
Jeffrey Epstein connection I found is uh, Bruce Baird on Twitter points out that Ronald Lauder is a billionaire who apparently gave Jeffrey Epstein the Austrian passport with a fake name he had in what? 1986. Yeah, uh, Ronald Lauder was the U.S. ambassador to Austria in 1986. So Jeffrey Epstein had an Austrian passport they found in his right. safe mm -hmm. with a fake name on it that was issued in 86. And apparently this billionaire U.S. ambassador gave him this fake passport. But uh, according to panamza.com, he was, quote, the driving force behind privatizing the Twin Towers. Hmm. Because in 1998, the uh, Port Authority of New York and New Jersey began the process of trying to privatize the Twin Towers. And then by July 2001, they had this uh, deal, this 99-year lease with Larry Silverstein. So before it was privatized, it was just owned by the Port Authority? Yeah. It was managed by the Port Authority of New York huh. and New Jersey. Huh. So he only owned it for like seven months before they fell down? Oh, yeah. Less than that. That's so fucking suspicious. Yeah. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know this until like we started doing research for this. And it's like, if I bought something that was broken within seven months, I meant for that thing to break. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. There's there's no way I bought shit and been like, yeah, this will break in six months. I'm willing to put billions of broken. dollars into it. Yeah, I have t-shirts that last at least three years. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Buy a t-shirt and it rips in nine months. That's like your 9-11. That's like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. You, something was going on there. I think for me, my personal 9-11 is like carrying like two pizzas and then falling and then falling. Face <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. Just like, this, this is going to break me. Mm -hmm. A second pizza has hit the ground. <laughs> America is under attack. <laughs> and you still don't get the day off from school. <laughs> Uh, but uh, James Corbett of the CorbettReport.com has a, a very interesting piece about 9-11 trillions followed the money. Um, you know, again, some people will dispute as to how much Larry Silverstein actually walked away from this. But the actual story of how he got the trade centers, the World Trade Center, I think is, is mostly indisputable. In 98, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, I'm quoting from James Corbett now, agreed to privatize the World Trade Center, the complex of office towers in lower Manhattan that they had owned and operated since their construction in 1973. In April 2001, an agreement was reached with a consortium investors uh, that was led by Silverstein Properties. And on July 24, 2001, Larry Silverstein, who already owned World Trade Center Building 7, signed a 99-year lease for the Twin Towers and Buildings 4 and 5. The lease was for $3.2 billion and was financed from a bridge loan uh, by... GMAC, which was the commercial mortgage arm of General Motors, as well as $111 million from Lloyd Goldman and Joseph uh, Carey. The Silverstein Properties only put down $14 million of its own money. Mm. So that's like weird to begin with. This is a $3.2 billion lease. He put down about $14 million right. for this thing. And then this is another thing. It was, the deal was unusual in a variety of ways. Although the Port Authority carried only $1.5 billion of insurance co uh, coverage on the World Trade Center complex as of 2001, which earlier that year, earlier 2001, the two World Trade Center buildings were valued at $1.2 billion. Despite that, Larry Silverstein had insisted on doubling the amount, insuring the buildings for $3.55 billion. Hmm. So it's like... You know, people have also talked about the World Trade Centers were full of asbestos because they were built in 1973. They were kind of like legacy office buildings where it was like it, it would be they wouldn't be as valuable as modern construction on that that uh, that real estate because, yeah, it's got a bunch of fucking asbestos. They were spending, you know, tens of millions of dollars on asbestos removal. And I've heard estimates that removing all the asbestos 
from the World Trade Center would have cost billions of dollars yeah. mm -hmm. because there's so much square footage and actual asbestos removal is a very expensive, you know, complicated process because you have to make sure you people to, don't get sprayed with asbestos. Yeah, you have to disrupt all the, le you have to tell people to leave while you do it. Right. right. Break leases and stuff. He's like, well, we're going to kill 3,000 people, but we will save a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so it's like because, again, the Port Authority had $1.5 of insurance on this in 2001, and he, Larry Silverstein, insisted on more than doubling this to $3.55 of insurance. Uh, because this was like such a big deal, the insurance broker struggled to put together that much coverage and ultimately had to split it among 25 different dealers. So he had this $3.55 split among 25 different insurance companies. Uh, and then, you know, there's a ton of negotiations. There's a lot of reports of Larry Silverstein like, just running around crazy in this period, like really? July up to September. Like there's a story like with one of the insurance contracts, he left the hospital while he was on morphine what? to like run and get this insurance contract signed. Oh. Cause he was like, it really does seem like he was running around trying to get these insurance deals finalized. Yeah. Like I might be dipping my toe too much in the conspiracy side of this, but when I found out he, it was only a few months before the attack happened, part of me went, yeah, you would be scrambling to make sure all that's set up for the attacks. Mm. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, and, and so apparently the negotiation, uh, quoting from Corbett, the negotiations were so involved that only temporary contracts were in place for the insurance at the time the lease was signed. And by September, the contracts were still being finalized. So it was like, yeah, he was scrambling all over the place to get these deals done. And they were only like temporary contracts at the time of the attacks. And so that's kind of weird. Like, you know, like what I would say with Larry Silverstein is there's three coincidences here. Like, let's be generous. Mm -hmm. Let's just say this is all luck. The first is, of course, the dermatologist appointment. The second is like he wants to double the insurance payout, more than double it. You know, like you think a building worth one point two billion, you want to pay premiums that are that much higher. You know, like you've got to be ex on some level. Are you expecting something to happen? Right, Why are right. you doing that? But he more than doubles the amount of insurance. So that's the second coincidence. And then the third is basically the way the deal was structured, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey gets about $500 million payout from this privatization. And then Larry Silverstein, immediately after, by August 2001, he has securitized all the World Trade Center buildings that he owns, building one, two, I think four and five uh, maybe six as well, but he's put these into security. What securitize? It's where you make it like a yeah. He, you he own put, stock in it, or yeah, he put them into bonds, basically. Okay. Sorry, sorry, everybody. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's good you asked that. Your listeners just got really mad. <laughs> like, oh fuck, really? <laughs> I should be on the show. <laughs> yeah, sorry. World Trade Centers one, two, four, and five were securitized. And he had these these uh, buildings securitized in August 2001. So bonds were sold based on the underlying value of the asset. And why that's important is because, as we just said, the Port Authority got $500 million. Larry Silverstein, by selling these bonds, got $560 million in August 2001. If he didn't have that cash when those things came down, he probably would have been wiped out. Yeah. Because instead, the he was able to have a giant puddle of cash that kept him going until he got the insurance payout and all of the uh, the risk essentially was transferred to the bondholders right. and the insurance companies so it's just like 
It's just so weird to me that this guy knew to take out a massive insurance policy yeah. and also immediately get liquid. Right. It's like just August you, 2001. He's calling. and It's like your estimated wait time is 44 <laughs> minutes. Like, oh, come on. God damn it. <laughs> but yeah, it's like that's not that's not proof that right. Larry Silverstein was involved in 9-11. But it no. is like, yeah, he's he's worth being called Lucky Larry in that he made like Three, the three greatest business decisions of his life mm -hmm. all in the same year. Imagine being the State Farm insurance investigator <laughs> right, for right. Larry Silverstein. <laughs> and he's like, I, I, I haven't really prepared for this scenario. Uh, he's going through like uh, his manual of um, different types of car crashes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, and people also point out like, assuming there was some sort of government conspiracy here by getting the World Trade Center off the books of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, like had they still been the owners at the time, this would have, I mean, they definitely would have needed a federal bailout immediately, oh, yeah, but that would have wiped them out. Like they didn't have the money to spend, you know, maybe seven billion rebuilding as mm -hmm. well as take on mm -hmm. all those liabilities. So, you know, I mean, it seemed to work out well for everybody involved. And after the attacks, it's something like two days and he's like, I'm going to rebuild. And mm -hmm. Nobody has a plan in 48 hours after a tragedy. Right. This is not, you don't go, I didn't expect this, but also this is exactly what I'm going to do now. Yeah. This is not a thing that happens. Yeah. All right, let's get those offices back up. We got to get back to work. <laughs> There's Marty no looking at floor then. plans. Yeah. His daughter's calling her, her dad, but can, can I go back to work now? Is this, she has no yeah. idea what's going yeah, yeah, yeah. on. She calls him every day. She goes into work. <laughs> Dad, is, is it okay to go in today? Dad, yes. Go to work yes. Today. <laughs> today you can go to work. <laughs> uh, but continuing from the Corbett report, within hours of the destruction of the Twin Towers on September 11th, Silverstein was on the phone to his lawyers trying to determine if his insurance policies could construe the attacks as two separate insurable incidents rather than one. Mm -hmm. Because he would make the argument in court that two planes hit, so I should get the $3.5 billion insurance twice because it's two incidents rather than one. That's a man that knows empathy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there were people who lost like two family members mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he lost two buildings. That's right. So it's a very yeah. tough thing to go through. <laughs> He's like, I meant pull it as in pull one of my insurance claims. <laughs> yeah. There's so much loss of life. No, I, yeah. I meant like pull my finger. And it makes a, <laughs> it makes a fart noise. <laughs> that's, that's what I was talking about. Yeah. But so eventually he would uh, he would settle for four point five five billion. Again, there's arguments how much Aww. of that he, how much of that he saw. Uh, he was seeking like what seven yeah. seven point one billion seven point one yeah for yeah three point five five billion two incidents. He was seeking seven point one gets four point five five. Um, you know, there, I've, I've seen different breakdowns of like how much he had to pay off. You know, the GMAC loan, uh, his equity partners, uh, the Port Authority, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I generally tend to believe he walked away with maybe just over a billion, which he then reinvested into rebuilding. Uh, and that's where his $1.4 billion plus net worth right. today comes from. Um, I think worth it. I think anybody would take that deal. Any yeah. billionaire right now would be like, okay, 3,000 people are going to die, and some people are going to think you suck, but you'll make a billion dollars off of it. It really does. It depends how much you trust your wife, too. Because <laughs> like, right. that guy can never cheat. I mean, he's 90, so you probably don't oh even want to fuck anymore. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. 
He's just like banging interns. He's like, I'm going to the New York Times. Just, yeah, I know. He's just like DMing women on Instagram. <laughs> and she's like, what are you fucking asshole? I'm going to destroy you. He's like, no, no, no. I just, everybody does it. <laughs> he sends the fire emoji on Instagram. <laughs> it was just a DM. It wasn't anything. Uh... Has the drooly face, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she could really. Man's got game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you know, regardless of how much money he walked away from, uh, he walked away from this deal with. Regardless of how much, uh, Corbett does point out something very interesting to me. He says, "quote Perhaps even more outrageously, in a secret deal in 2003." The Port Authority agreed to pay back 80% of their initial equity in the lease, but allowed the Silverstein Group to maintain control of the site. The deal gave Silverstein, Goldman, and Kayer $98 million of the $125 million they put down on the lease, and a further $130 million in insurance proceeds that were earmarked for the site's rebuilding. So it's like, as we mentioned earlier, that's how all these New York real estate guys operate. They lobby people in the government. A lot of times they give them, you know, sweetheart jobs after they leave the government to get these good deals where the Port Authority in 2003 is like they get their daughters into UCB improv. <laughs> 101. <laughs> they get them a meeting with Matt Besser. That's yes. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, the Port Authority in 2003 gives him a deal where they got back 80 percent of their initial equity and there was no reason for the Port Authority to do that mm-hmm. except for like, you know, hey, keep your mouth shut. Right. Right. Yeah. Yo, Sean, talk about that Opie and Anthony thing. The like when the towers are falling, they got like one of their interns that's oh, like God. on TV. Uh, yeah, this is one of the weirdest things. Somebody on Twitter DM this to me. <laughs> so, a former producer of the Opie and Anthony show is one of the first people on Fox News live on the scene mm-hmm. on the day of to describe what's uh, now known as the pancake theory, right? Which is like you know the towers collapsed on their own weight, uh, you know, like a pancake or whatever. Uh, They pancaked. And so he goes on like live on the scene with this Fox News reporter. And throughout the interview, there are two men in like black sunglasses standing behind him as he's being interviewed, like clearly observing what he's saying Mm -hmm. to this Fox News reporter. And then the Fox News reporter like talks to him and listens to like, you know, first of all, it's weird that this guy like just saw the towers collapse and immediately had a theory of what brought it down. You know, it was just like the fire from the thing collapsed. The is structure. that the guy who says like mostly due to structural failure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yep. goes, then I witnessed the towers collapse mostly due to structural failure. Yeah, yeah it's like, what the yeah. fuck? <laughs> that was crazy. Yeah. That's not how humans talk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so not only that, like not only is that they're this fucking, uh, you know, probably CIA or whatever guy in the background watching this interview. Then the Fox News reporter goes over and he asks one of these like guys in dark sunglasses. So like, so what's your role here? And he's like. I'm just standing by. Can't really talk about my role. <laughs> it's like, oh, fuck. Maybe we'll put it in post uh, we're here. We're to bring in Mark Walsh, who's a, a freelancer for Fox. You live just a few blocks away and witnessed. Dude, I, was, I, was, I live on the 43rd floor of a building, which is five blocks from the World Trade Center itself. I witnessed the entire thing from beginning to end. People talk about how it looked like a movie. I know when I came walking down here early this morning and saw both towers on fire and people on every street corner, it was, it was, it was like a movie, but you watch the planes hit the towers. I was watching with my roommate. It was approximately several minutes after the first plane had hit. I saw this plane come out of nowhere and just ream right into the side of the Twin Tower, exploding through the other side. 
And then I witnessed both towers collapse, one first and then the second, mostly due to structural failure because the fire was just too intense. Uh, so can we talk to you, sir, what's your role out here right now? I'm just standing by right now. Can't say what role I'm playing right now. Well, there's a lot of standing by. There's also concern that some of these other buildings... But it's, oh man, it's one of those things where I saw it and I was like, what the fuck? Right, right, yeah. And just fucking how sloppy this whole thing was. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't even... It's like, that's the thing. It's like, the people who disbelieve the conspiracy, they say, oh, so many things would have to go perfectly. And the reality is no. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. there's a, there a million fuck-ups in any conspiracy that you see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The only thing that went perfectly was the the the... The explosives wired in the building that brought it down. <laughs> that went really. Whoever did yeah. that did a great right. job. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're the only ones that are paid fairly. Everyone else is yeah, like, yeah. we'll pay you after the thing. Yeah. Yeah. That opening Anthony producer was killed right after. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. Um, but there was like, there are people being interviewed who are like, that was not a commercial airliner. That was a black military plane. Yeah, I remember that as well, where, it, like, everyone didn't know what it was, mm -hmm. where it was like, I didn't see a plane, but I heard the explosion, mm -hmm. and immediately, confusion set. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, like, there's a, more than a dozen interviews with, like, firefighters and first responders who were like, yeah, we were in the building, there were explosives set off, and it's yeah. like, you can watch them, and people will say, maybe rightly, that you can't really rely on eyewitness testimony. Things are chaotic. Is, is clouded. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. People don't always know what's going on. And it's like, yeah, that's fair enough. But mm -hmm. it's it's also just like, just when I see like some guy who has two dudes with black sunglasses standing behind him uh, saying to Fox News, yeah, the building collapsed mostly due to structural failure. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, this, this, this guy was handed a fucking script. You're mm -hmm. not going to make me not believe that. Yeah. And it's also something where in that period to say that this was at all orchestrated and or people knew about it, the quick response from people was like, you think the American government would let 3,000 people die? You really think yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. And we're living in a ride where right now like 1,000 people are dying a day and it's like everyone's happy-go-lucky. We're all excited for the football season coming up. Like it's yeah, not yeah. even a thing to think about, whereas in that era... You, you really think Dick Cheney is evil enough to kill 3,000 people? <laughs> I love this when they go, you really think the government is competent enough right, to right, do that? Right, yeah. Like, yeah. They don't have to be. Nope. There's going to be so many fuck-ups, like you guys said. Yeah. And uh, I, a conspiracy can have slip-ups all over the place, but if they can maintain at least like a minimal amount of cohesion... Mm -hmm. they can just gaslight everyone into being like he you seriously believe that <laughs> but then you think about the information that's coming out too it's like but it's easy to control the information like you don't not, like not everybody who works for the news has to be like in on it right you just sell them this idea if you're higher ups you're like this is ridiculous this is crazy this is crazy that people think this and then you go like yeah that is crazy you know it's easy to believe right the other side of yeah. it which is like these people are crazy mm-hmm if you're being told by your superiors one story, you're mm -hmm. going, sure, why not? I yeah. think that's fine. Yeah. And also, I think that I, it might not be true anymore, but the attack on the World Trade Center is like the most uh, filmed thing or like most viewed thing that has ever happened. Because like, mm -hmm. it was yeah, just a live. Perfect, yeah, yeah, perfect marriage of like when, I mean, this is also part of conspiracy. The, it's the most perfect amount of era of like, yes, we have live cameras on New York City and a crazy catastrophe is occurring right now. It's kind of interesting, like, t 
to talk about Larry Silverstein is if you just set aside all the 9-11 shit, he's like a corrupt New York real estate developer. Mm -hmm. So it's like it, it's hard for us to transition from like, hey, this guy got uh, this guy did 9-11 to he got some tax abatements. He shouldn't have, <laughs> you know, he really didn't qualify for these tax abatements. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I, I did find a, a Wall Street Journal article to that effect because um, it's like, yeah, so he. He gets his payout, $4.55 billion. He then tries to sue the airlines for negligence. He tries to sue them for his for $3 billion because he really wanted that $7 billion. Right, right. So he tries to sue the airlines for $3 billion. It gets thrown out, and then later they settle for like $95 million. Hmm. I think American and United uh, settle with him for $95 million. But uh, he, he rebuilds. World Trade Center. What was the negligence, though? Like, the stewardess should have not gotten her throat slit? <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. They should have screened and not let the, uh, you know, hijackers on the plane or whatever. Yeah. But I think his ultimate move in those situations is whatever the other party agreed to, he was like, but double that, because it happened mm -hmm. twice. Mm -hmm. And it should also just be noted regarding World Trade Center 7. Uh, another argument I've heard is that, you know, these, these things were built uh, negligently, very possible. Uh, Con Edison actually sued Larry Silverstein and Silverstein Properties <laughs> over World Trade Center 7. Because uh, there was like a Con Edison generator underneath it, which got fucked up. And so power in New York was fucked up for like a couple weeks oh, or, really? or whatever. Um, so Con Edison and uh, some of the insurers, they sued the Port Authority and they sued Silverstein over World Trade Center 7's construction. And they argued negligence with uh, the design, maintenance, maintenance, and inspection of the diesel fuel tanks in Tower 7, hmm. uh, which caused the Building 7 collapse. And this lawsuit was thrown out. However, NIST is the official government agency that has settled on the official government explanation for Tower 7's collapse. They officially have ruled out the diesel fuel tanks as being the cause of collapse. They say that it was the uh, thermal expansion, oh. which, you know, again, I'm not an engineer. I can't dispute it, but it is just kind of funny where it's like, yeah, they sued him for negligence in design. They cited the fuel tanks, but the fuel tanks are not officially the reason this thing collapsed. Mm. I did see a video where this guy, like, he takes a steel rod and he heats it up, not to the point of where it melts, mm -hmm. but he heats it up to the to like 1500 degrees or whatever jet fuel burns at. Right. And and it it becomes like a noodle, like it becomes very like malleable. Uh huh. And he's like, so I'm sick of these conspiracies. Like, get it, like, get a job. Right, right, right. But you'd think there would be like some resistance. You'd think the thing wouldn't just come straight down. Like, there would be a little bit of like a. Right. Some sort of like. Like, there would be some kind of. Yeah. Yeah. How does this much building bring down this much building? Right, right. I don't know. What do I know, though? Just I'm just some guy who's going to be dead in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be shot in the head in my apartment <laughs> for podcasting. They'll, they'll call it a heart attack. They'll be like, right. well, they'll he like, did eat a lot of yeah. cold cuts. They'll, they'll <laughs> he, was, he was Italian and he loved cold cuts. And he, so uh, we didn't shoot him with the heart attack. They'll make you, you'll give a statement with uh, some guys in black suits behind you. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. I can't really say why I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you I'm not doing cold cuts anymore. That's code. Yeah, I got to stop doing all my, like, I'm depressed stand-up bits. Just because, like, right. I want to talk yeah, about yeah, yeah. the World Trade Center. Right. You're going to say, like, I am the happiest <laughs> I've right. ever, right. ever yeah. been yeah. in my entire life. <laughs> I am so happy. Uh, but, yeah, just like, you know, let's say a safer scandal here. Sure. I'll just, I'll go through this. As we mentioned, he rebuilds the fucking thing. It's worth 1.4, he's worth 1.4 billion, right. whatever. Right. Uh, there's a Wall Street Journal article from 2013 called Subpoenas Sent to the City's Big Landlords. 
The New York State Commission, which was known as the Moreland Commission to Investigate Public Corruption, this was initially set up by Governor Andrew Cuomo and later shut down by and- Governor Andrew Cuomo mm. when it uh, found corruption. Ah, yes. The but, perfect reason to shut something down. It's working. Yeah. So basically, in uh, in 2013, this commission sent out subpoenas to Exdale Developments, uh, Silverstein Properties Incorporated, and Thor Equities. Uh, they seek information related to a housing bill that passed the New York State Legislature and was signed by Governor Andrew Cuomo in late January 2013. And then this is important. The bill included a provision that would allow for greatly reduced residential property taxes for years on five specific Manhattan development sites, including Extel's uh, 1,004-foot hotel condo tower called 157 by Central Park, mm-hmm. Silverstein's plans... Uh, Four Seasons Tower located in Lower Manhattan, and a Thor Equities site on Fifth Avenue. Hmm. So it's like normally property tax abatements or whatever, they have general conditions. Sure, sure. Anybody can apply for them. This bill that passed the New York State Legislature in 2013 listed five specific properties <laughs> to give tax abatements to, one of which was Larry Silverstein's. I mean, you know that he's on the phone yelling at lawyers during all of this. Like, he gets his way when it comes to the lawsuits, and uh, it shows. Yeah, and continuing from the article, the subpoenas could eventually help shed light on advocacy and lobbying by the real estate and development sector, long a powerful force in Albany politics. Top landlords and their advocacy groups traditionally are prolific donors, contributing millions of dollars each election cycle collectively the campaign committees of governors and influential members of the legislature. And the outcomes of policies like taxes and rent regulation can cost or make them fortunes. The legislation at issue was lobbied for by the Real Estate Board of New York, the industry's main advocacy arm. At least two of those developers, Silverstein and Extel, had collectively contributed millions of dollars to build dozens of units of low-income housing in the city, as was required by 421A regulations. Hmm. So the 421A is a, uh, a New York State tax uh, abatement exemption for real estate developers that says as long as you throw X number of units of affordable housing in here, you get a tax break on your property taxes. However, uh, from the Wall Street Journal, despite the developers' impressions, uh, prior 421A legislation didn't include their properties because they were located in high-density zones, which don't qualify for the tax break. So basically... These five properties, they started building, including the one from Silverstein, they started building in Manhattan in high-density zones under the impression that they could get the 421A property tax abatement. And then, like, in the middle of building, they're like, oh, shit, we didn't realize it's Manhattan. You can't get this abatement. So they lobbied the state government, and they got a bill passed which just gave the abatement to five specific properties. (laughs) And then they got hit with subpoenas, and then Governor Cuomo shut down the Moreland Commission. Incredible. So, you know, it's like you just have to imagine this guy was doing this shit his entire career. Oh, yeah. He's very lucky. He's just making deals, you know? <laughs> but he's got great skin. Yeah. He's, exactly. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I didn't get the subpoena. I was at my dermatologist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he doesn't even have good skin is the no, thing. It's no. not even like a believable. Yeah. When I was looking stuff up, I didn't know that it, he had a dermatologist appointment. Uh-huh. So I kept watching videos and people were like, the, what's such great skin on this guy? I really <laughs> love his skin. And I was like, why are we? So obsessed with this. You can just say the doc- a doctor's appointment. Yeah, the yeah. fact that it's a dermatologist is oddly specific, but that's what a good alibi seems like. Yeah, mm-hmm. lots the of more details. specific. Yeah, yeah. As I was going to go to my meeting, I had a Coke in my hand, and I realized I wanted a Pepsi, so I left. 
you have to imagine somebody like talked him through that where he's like he wanted to mm-hmm. say at a doctor's appointment and then like if somebody has to follow up like what kind of doctor like uh uh fuck fuck uh <laughs> general practitioner no no, no, no wait no, dermatologist no. Uh, acupuncture no yeah. no no go go american it is funny when you look at the youtube videos and like first of all they either have they're all downvoted mm-hmm. like at least 85 <laughs> percent, which is very very justice. funny like yeah yeah, yeah. It, it is the only like a little bit of justice it's the closest thing we'll it's get, like yeah. the only thing we'll really get is like making fun of him on twitter when he dies yeah. right and the and youtube comments and on some of the videos the comments are disabled they're all voted down like at least it's like a hundred likes and it's eight hundred dislikes, right, right. which you don't really see on YouTube. That's like jarring to see that. Yeah, yeah. And all the comments are like, "You fucking demon! You <laughs> kill! You killed all these people!" <laughs> Lucky Larry, like, yeah, let's pull it. Like every comment after uh, comment. So I don't know. At least we got each other, right? All right. Yeah, well, we made a lot of friends along the way. But I. I think that gives you most of the story as far as we've been able to piece it together of Larry Silverstein, where it's like, I don't know if he had foreknowledge of 9-11. I don't know if he was involved in 9-11. I do know that he made three very lucky decisions Mm -hmm. that were either like, again, luck or foreknowledge. But setting that aside, he's always been a scumbag real estate developer in New York. He like survives off, you know, the taxpayers of New York, pay all these fucking abatements to these billionaires uh, to do like fake affordable housing like basically the wall street journal article ends by saying after he got this 421 uh a tax abatement he's selling condos for like 90 million in the building wow uh-huh. so yeah whatever happened like regardless of his alleged involvement in 9-11 or not he, at the end of the day he's still just profits directly off of rising rents mm-hmm. in new york city right and so it's like you can make up your own mind on Larry Silverstein, but with the time we have left, I think it might be worth just talking about our kind of closing thoughts on 9-11 for the 20th anniversary. And we mentioned earlier those insider trading econometric uh, papers. I, I know, Steve, you took a bit of a look at them. If you could maybe give our audience a bit of an overview. Sure. Well, there's three papers that we found and that are like went through like a peer review process. And one of them probably the most important one is it went through the University of Chicago Press and the Journal of Business, which are two like of the most mainstream sources you can find that wouldn't be like attached to like 911philly.org or some shit mm-hmm. like that. No offense. But uh, what they found was if you look at in the days and weeks prior to 9-11, if you were someone who was trying to profit directly off of the attacks and you had foreknowledge of it mm-hmm. then what you would do is you would buy long put options against the airlines and or against the market more broadly right in that time period and so you're like all right if that was true then we would see an abnormal volume in those types of put options and that's what they found huh. they found that uh after controlling for a bunch of different other events such as like negative like there's a, a ceo of one of the, the airlines was being changed and like you know the airlines are just shitty generally sure. so there's a lot of bad news going around about them after controlling for all that it was still abnormal so the put options are just money that says it's going to tank that's a bet that you think the price of the underlying stock will go down gotcha so if it does go down then you make money and with united airlines and american airlines chiefly the the volume of put options being being transacted in that period 
was more than four standard deviations higher than you'd expect. Mm. So if you if you just said it was up to chance, it would be like one in a million, basically, that you would just see that just from r- random market volatility. Right. Yeah, but also that's when the eTrade.com baby commercials <laughs> premiered, so everybody was like, I should get in the stock market now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, they looked at broader broader market volatility during the time was just kind of you know normal doing doing its thing with uh like the the ratio of puts to call options which is generally around like 0.8 or so meaning that there's uh, about 20% more um call options being bought and sold than there are put options being bought and sold which generally is just how the market is at normal times but that's what was prevailing hmm. so it wasn't like there was some like it wasn't like we were going into like what looked like a recession or something. Sure, right. But that could be obscuring the true meaning of this these crazy put option volatility. Yeah, and Steve, you were telling me like these three econometric papers, they were written in like such dry academic language to the point where you think they probably just had to write them that way to get like <laughs> there was insider trading on 9-11 published yeah. <laughs> in an economic journal. Yeah, but, so like they, they said like... uh if someone was to make to profit off it, here's how it would happen. Yeah. And so let's say that the terrorists themselves and their direct uh, accomplices wanted to profit off of it. So they don't make any mention of like, oh, there's domestic actors who also had foreknowledge or something right. that was going on. And like, uh, they're not talking about like Larry, Larry Silverstein or someone. They're just saying like the terrorists themselves wanted to profit. And, you know, maybe that they could be right about that. But they just have, a, have to keep the language very narrow, I think, in order to get past, like, reviewer number two or whatever <laughs> at, like, the, 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 the academic journal. Makes sense. Right. And the papers, like, you said, you know, four standard deviations, like, that's insane. Uh, it's very high probability. I think, like, they've some of the papers take a probability estimate. I think one of them put it, like, 99%. Uh, informed trading was going on like yeah. none of them can say a hundred percent certainty but when you have like numbers like that in an academic paper it's all but a certainty right yeah it's the, the key thing was just if you left it to chance it would be one in a million or greater that right. this would happen on these days well you know sometimes people just have dermatologist appointments <laughs> the morning of 9-11 <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, the Corbett report again, James Corbett, he, he talks about the nine 11 commission cause the nine 11 commission, again, this 2004 investigation into nine 11, which is to this point, the only investigation that there has been done by the U S government, except for an earlier congressional investigation. Uh, they did address this and they said, uh, there was, they addressed the put options on United Airlines stock on September 6th. 95% of the puts were placed by a, quote, single U.S.-based institutional investor with no conceivable ties to Al-Qaeda, hmm. which is kind of a weird phrasing where it's like, we're not saying they didn't have any ties to 9-11. We're right. saying they had no ties to Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. Um, but they ultimately concluded that there was they could not find evidence of insider trading. So you have three econometric papers that say there was 
an almost certain probability of insider trading. And then you have the 9-11 commission, which says, no, nothing happened here. <laughs> and then quoting from Corbett, unfortunately, we will likely never see the documentary evidence of that from the commission itself. One researcher requesting access under the Freedom of Information Act to the documentary evidence that the 9-11 commission used to conclude that there had been no insider trading received a response that stated, quote, that the potentially responsive records have been destroyed, unquote. So the 9-11 Commission, they have a secret formula that they use to determine there was no insider trading that they won't share with anybody that's <laughs> apparently been destroyed. And then you have like three academic scientific papers saying there was insider trading. So it's like, I don't know. I don't know. If that doesn't convince you, what more do you want? And these, um, so these papers, the Chicago paper has been cited by the SEC for other cases. <laughs> Saying like, okay, this can be used as a, this is this can help regulators find when there was insider trading hmm. for other things, and so like the regulators are saying like, yeah, no, this is useful. You know, we should use this for other cases, uh, but they won't follow up on this particular case. Brilliant, no cover up at all, guys. I think this is an open and shut case. What we've been told is exactly how things are. I like that the commission was like, we actually found no evidence of insider trading and someone's like oh interesting so can you show us your work and they're like it was burned <laughs> yeah uh we pulled it <laughs> yeah we decided to pull it there's so much loss of life yeah, but... i talked to an engineer friend who said the same thing about the nist report hmm. where they like won't show their model for how they determine tower seven's collapse again i'm not an engineer can't verify that but you know it is what it is but Regardless, I think the insider trading is very strong evidence. And you know what? Like just the 9-11 commission itself. Again, the the last investigation anybody tried into this, the executive director of the 9-11 commission was a guy named Philip Zellico. Philip Zellico. And this was like people knew this. Democrats knew this back during the Bush administration. Philip Zellico was a member of mm. the Bush administration, the executive director of the 9-11 commission. He was part of the Bush transition team. He wrote a book with Condoleezza Rice. He uh, wrote a policy paper which the Bush administration used to justify the invasion of Iraq. Right. He wrote it at the request of Condoleezza Rice while she was in the Bush administration. She asked him to write a paper justifying a first strike on Iraq, which he did, which the Bush administration used. And throughout the 9-11 Commission, he was, while he was the executive director, in frequent contact with both Condoleezza Rice and Karl Rove. This is the executive director of the 9-11 Commission, the person with the power to call witnesses, the power to introduce evidence, to control where the investigation goes. So just on the most basic level, even if you don't believe Bush fucking did it, even if you think the story is like 99, 100% true, you should not have a member of the Bush administration investigating the Bush administration regarding 9-11. Like that enough should be enough for a new investigation. But people look at you like you have like five eyes on your head when you say we should reinvestigate uh, 9-11. Mm -hmm. Our boy Biden's going to do it, though, right? Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> President Biden has announced uh, after, like, the family said, you cannot come to our events if you don't, like, let us know what happened on 9-11. Uh, he said that... Uh, Did that happen? Yeah, the 9-11 uh, the families, there's a group of about 2,000 people who are, you know, family members of people killed on 9-11. Mm -hmm. And that's like why it bothers me when people are so dismissive of truthers, 9-11 truthers. Mm. Like 2,000 of them, of the most active, are yeah. people who and had... people die. Yeah, the people they love were murdered that day. Mm -hmm. And they want to know the truth. And the reality is the government of the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have been fighting them in court for, you know, basically since the towers fell. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but Biden has said that he's directed his attorney general to, over the next six months, declassify records related to 9-11. In particular, after the 9-11 commission, there was an FBI investigation called Operation Encore, uh, where the FBI investigated Saudi Arabia's role and links to 9-11. That investigation was immediately classified. We have no idea what's in it for the mm. most part. Uh, so the families have been suing Saudi Arabia and they've tried to subpoena the results of this FBI investigation, Operation Encore. And then just recently, uh, according to Catherine Herridge at CBS News, on September 2nd, 2021, the 9-11 families, or a group of them, have filed an inspector general complaint alleging mishandling and possible destruction of FBI records to block disclosure. This stems from an April 2018 subpoena and includes video of the hijackers that, quote, the FBI lost, hit, or destroyed a key videotape showing a Saudi agent hosting a party in San Diego for two of the 9-11 hijackers. So it's like there's just so much smoke here that my hope is, you know, maybe we can just end this episode with a call to action. Mm -hmm. Be like 22-year-old Mike Racine. Mm -hmm. Call your congressperson. Yeah and demand they reinvestigate 9-11. Call AOC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell her to get her shit together. <laughs> Tell her to get off the picket line and investigate 9-11. One more thing I do want to mention. The, I said those Mossad agents in New Jersey, mm-hmm. because you know, no matter what at this point, no matter how well Chris edits it, I will be accused of anti-Semitism. So I do just what? want... I do just want to give this story because like, I think people hear dancing Israelis and they think this is like a right-wing meme, and it is, but... The story, you can read this on abcnews.com.go.com. The headline is, Were Israelis Detained on September 11th Spies? It's from 2002. And this is a New Jersey homemaker. She saw something that morning that prompted an investigation into five young Israelis and their possible connection to Israeli intelligence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maria, she asked ABC News not to use her last name, said that she had a view of the World Trade Center from her New Jersey apartment. Uh, Her friend called her after the first building got hit. She looked out her window. She saw three men. They appeared to be taking pictures, filming, celebrating. And uh, she wrote down the license plate, called the police. The police car stopped them later. There were five men in that van on the license plate. Mm -hmm. The arresting officer said they saw a lot that aroused suspicion. One of the passengers had 4,700 in cash hidden in his sock. Another was carrying two foreign passports. A box cutter was found in the van. But perhaps the biggest surprise for the officer came when the five men identified themselves as Israeli citizens. Hmm. And according to the foreword, a respected Jewish newspaper in New York, uh, the FBI concluded that two of the men were Israeli intelligence operatives. Hmm. They were interrogated. They were later let go. And so it's like the innocent explanation, as far as I understand it, is they were just in New Jersey investigating Muslim terrorists, and they just happened to see 9-11 and film it. And they were compelled to dance. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And, you know... um, and celebrate or whatever, sure. or, you know, maybe they're just young men, you know, they're, they, you don't know how to react to nine 11 when you're a young man. You're <laughs> yeah. like, Every, everyone experiences grief right. different, <laughs> differently. <laughs> some people jerk off. Some people dance. Exactly. It's a whole thing. So it's like, but it is just like, it's just another one of those things where we look at Silverstein, we look at, you know, the Mossad, possible Mossad agents, uh, whoever, or Buzzy Krongard. I mentioned him, the number three at the CIA. Right. Alex Brown was the name of the Deutsche Bank subsidiary that engaged in like this very probable insider trading. You look at all these people and you just say like, 
why haven't they been hauled before Congress? Why hasn't somebody put them under oath, you know, served them with a subpoena and just said, answer these questions. And if you commit perjury, you're going to prison. It's never happened. And, you know, Donald Rumsfeld's dead. We're running out of time here. Mm -hmm. I do think like I think it's important for the families, but I do think it's important for our country. Definitely. Because we just got out of Afghanistan after spending $2.3 trillion murdering 240,000 people. And for fucking what? Like, we deserve to know. You know, at some point, the United States has to choose. Are we an empire? Are we a closed society? Or are we an open society, a republic? Mm-hmm. Do we have the right to know what really happened on 9-11? And so that's why I'm encouraging you as my John Oliver call to action. Call your congressperson or senator and ask them to sponsor or co-sponsor the Bobby McIlvaney Act. Bobby McIlvaney was killed in the towers. Right. They wrote an Atlantic article about him. And uh, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth and some other groups have put together just a simple bill named after him that would compel Congress to create a committee to in- to reinvestigate 9-11, to call witnesses and just like, let's give this one more look and let's just see what turns up. Yeah. Seems fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Larry Silverstein's like, mm, I have a dermatologist appointment that day. <laughs> <laughs> and Larry, no disrespect. You know, we do admire your ability to uh, get money and get the bag, as the kids say. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Yeah, the man grinds. No hard know? feelings. Yeah. He grinds, yeah. Mm-hmm. He rises and grinds. He does. He really does. <laughs> He rises to the 91st floor. (laughs) You know, he missed it for like those first few years. He's like, I mean, I made money, but uh, I really do miss going into my buildings. I've been been in a funk ever since I couldn't get those poached eggs. (laughs) You know what's funny is like, okay, so he obviously, when this all was happening, he was like, I'm going to make so much money off of this. But then like when people like that, at that level of, of wealth, what do they get excited about when they make money? Like, what are they like? Oh, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to buy, you know? Because for me, when I, like, I don't know, have a good day or or when I, you know, I'm like, oh, I, I can buy, like, a hoodie or something. Sure, sure. You know? Yeah. Or I could take my wife out to dinner. Right. Um, Even though she doesn't really need to eat as much <laughs> as she does. <laughs> but, but, uh, but it's just like, no, but, like, what is the thing that is in their head that they're like, oh, I'm going to do this? I think it's less about excited to do something and more I'm afraid I won't be able to do as much as I can, you know? Because mm-hmm. you have hundreds of millions, right? So mm-hmm. the difference between, like, someone that's got, like, let's say 300 million and, like, a billion is, is insane, but also they're both living a relatively the same life. Mm-hmm. The fear of, like, if I don't have more than 2 billion, then I could be broke in a few years because mm-hmm. I want to live the most ball out lifestyle. And I want to make sure that as the world turns into tyranny, that I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. I think, I think they get off on having more power over people. Yeah. And so it's just, it's never enough. Yeah. And someone who has $500 million wants to be a billionaire desperately so that they know that they're that much powerful than yeah. the average person. I just imagine if you're a billionaire, you can tell like every time you see someone and they have nice tits, you can go, hey, nice tits. <laughs> and then you just write yeah. them a check for like 50 grand. I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I, I apologize. Yeah. yeah. You know what really disturbed me about this episode is I don't know if my wife would cover my 9-11 alibi oh, no. if I did 9-11. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. She might turn me in. Well, this is the one thing Silverstein's I think CIA, mine would turn me in too. Oh but yeah. That's, well, I don't know, but I, maybe it's like a, old school. Yeah. yeah, this is no. like bef- before. This is before feminism. You know, really like yeah, changed yeah, these bras. Yeah. They were like, yeah, you got to cover up nine eleven for your husband. <laughs> All yeah. I know is this plan could have been completely thwarted if Mark Wahlberg was on that flight. Right. 
Because he ima- really would have taken care of things. <laughs> just imagine like a meme where it's like, back in my day, men were men and gals covered up 9-11. <laughs> do you think with 9-11, in executing it, whatever part of the conspiracy you do or don't believe, do you think it worked? Whatever they wanted to get out of the situation, did they go, we did it. We fucking, we pulled it off. We pulled it. And now we get to live in an America that is what it is now. Yeah, I guess it depends on how you define they, because it's it seems like so many people benefited in so many different mm-hmm. ways, like yep. whether it was like your building or I don't know, like going to war or whatever it was. Right. So when like when you I don't know, it just it's it's there must have been so many people who benefited from it if it was premeditated that uh yeah, I guess they did. Since the Afghanistan war just ended, like, you know, those, the the group of 10 mostly military contractor companies mm-hmm. like Halliburton and whatnot, Bain, so they, they earned some of them over twice the return of the S&P 500 over the same period Jeez. of time. Mm-hmm. And like, so I know they, benef- they benefited. Uh, it doesn't mean they all knew what was going to happen on 9-11. Sure. But like, uh, I guess the conspirators plus them, yeah, like they, um, I would say it was a win for them. The reason I ask is I think, especially after 9-11 for those first 10 years, there was a feeling of like, well, this won't ever happen again. We'll protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. And because of what you both have just said, part of me goes, no, they'll do it again. Mm -hmm. This is, this is, we're living in a moment right now, which is pseudo- similar to the, uh, the 9-11 with the pandemic, but I do think that cause a tragedy that lets us do whatever we want, that is a strategy that works. I do think that F, the the wars that that event caused directly were kind of like, I view them as kind of the last gasp of our empire is mm. we needed some last hurrah of militarism sure. before we like become more sort of a multipolar world with like China or whatever. Mm. And um, uh, it was a win, but it like it was we won the battle, but lost the war. Maybe in terms of uh, maintaining like the power of our nation state here, plus the multinationals like Halliburton and Raytheon and all of them. Um, yeah, they did benefit a lot, but at the cost of like kind of being. Now we're going home in defeat, basically. And uh, some people want us to like pivot to go fight China or some shit. And uh, I don't think there's really an appetite for that. So what's their next sort of big thing going to be? Are they thinking up some some other events like 9-11 right now? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's something where it's like hard to remember because we were all kids. But like we live in a completely different world in U.S. today because of 9-11. And that's why I think the truth of it's so important because like the authorization of for use of military force that was passed after 9-11. That's still in effect. That's like, it basically, they use it all the time to say the president has the right to bomb Syria or Libya or whatever. It gives them the right to go after, you know, quote-unquote terrorists anywhere in the world. It's why there's Delta Force operators running around, you know, every fucking country in the global south. So it's like, yeah, there's that. There's the Patriot Act. There's the fact that we have like mass surveillance on a scale like never before seen in our history. Mm-hmm. The fact that the government has claimed the right to like indefinitely detain and murder U.S. citizens. 
Like, these are insane, and these are things that I don't think would have been tolerated in the past in America, but in the initial shock of 9-11, they passed all this legislation, and then it just became the norm. There's apparently a bunch of classified executive orders we don't even know about. They probably, they're probably, I do believe the FEMA camps are real. I mean, I think they could just put a bunch of us in FEMA camps after, you know, a bomb goes off in Manhattan or something. So it is just something where I think the only real way to undo this is to try to get something approaching the truth of what it was that set all this off in the first place. If we know that we were lied to about it by the government beyond who actually did it, if we know that we were lied to and they covered it up for 20 fucking years, I do think that will hopefully build a groundswell of public anger to undo a lot of the things that were done as a response to 9-11. By us in the FEMA camps, you mean podcasters? Yes. You mean all of us in, in fucking teepees and huts? We'll still be podcasting from from the FEMA camp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're like complaining, like, "Oh, you you told us we'd have better mics, but you gave us these Echo Blues. <laughs> these things are pieces of shit. There's so much feedback. We're just handing out CDs on the street, like podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Get your podcasts here. <laughs> you can't download it, but you got to download from the disc. But it still works. Yeah. Uh, well, Mike, Christine, I want to thank you very much for doing this with us. Um, I know this is going to be on your podcast as well. Um, so I just say on behalf of Grubstakers, if you're listening to the sit down, uh, we're on Patreon and SoundCloud and uh, Yogi and I will be in uh, Seattle. Um, you know what? I don't want to plug shit on the 9-11 episode. Yeah, I think that's, I think let's keep it. Let's keep the plug list. Mike, but, uh, yeah. Mike uh, where can people? Well, find I'll it? plug shit on the 9-11. <laughs> no, um, just uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Racine, uh, Instagram Racine Mike and uh Check out my my podcast, The Sit Down. And for the sit down people, you can follow us at Grubstakers Pod on Twitter as well, and check out our Patreon and so on and so forth. It does feel like bad doing plugs on like the burning corpse of nine eleven. Okay, well, I just plug my Twitter. Yeah, I don't, yeah. we're not like making no, money. I'm, not, I'm you know? not judging you. I'm yeah. just saying, you know, well, we're very lucky. <laughs> yeah, check out. I want to plug my dermatologist. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best of the city. Well, thanks for listening, and uh, please do, if you are interested, do uh, look up the Bobby McIlvaney Act, and, uh, you know, if you have the time, you could always try to contact your congressperson or senator and just ask them about this and let them know that the 9-11 families, a group of uh, several groups of 9-11 families, about 2,000 people, are advocating for this. They want a new investigation of 9-11. This is not just cranks. This is not just like random tinfoil hat people. These are the actual people who lost loved ones this day. They want to know the truth and they deserve to know the truth. So if you're interested in that, you know, please do whatever you can to, to help make that a reality. And with that, this has been Grubstakers. I'm Yogi Boywell. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. I'm Mike Racine. Peace. <laughs>